Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome to Stories of Scotland. In this episode, we're exploring the ooky, spooky, kooky, and creepy tales from across the country. I'm Annie, and I'm a very deep and murdery murky hole in the middle of nowhere. And I'm Jenny, your friendly neighbourhood cave dweller. Regular listeners of this show will know that the season we're currently in is all about the areas of Scotland we haven't touched upon yet as revealed by our interactive stories map that you can visit on our website. But the real core of this season is Galloway, a place hitherto unexamined by our podcast. And although our previous episode was on glorious Galloway, on this visit to the far southwest of the country, we are taking a look at ghastly, gory, gruesome Galloway. For we are in my favourite month of the year, Annie. Halloween month. Ah, the nights of the neeps. The time of the tumshies. The time of the tumshies indeed. And I hope all of you listeners have your neeps at the ready. Because the only right way to listen to this episode is whilst carving a turnip. If for some unknown reason you do not have a turnip handy, pause the episode now. Go to your local shop and buy the biggest neep you can find. Extra point if it's got a little bit of neep hair. (laughs) Then bring it home and carve it whilst listening to this episode. Because not only will it get you in the ooky spooky cookie mood, it also gives your turnip a few weeks to shrivel and dry for the ultimate creepy neepy vibes on Halloween. Yeah, even if this episode wasn't something completely non-Halloween related, you'd still be advising people to carve their neeps now. It's just common sense. Yep, you can't argue with that. But what you can argue with, Annie, is cannibals. Because, oh boy, do we have an episode for you all today. 
before we get started, we should just say that the stories that we are going to be telling are some of the most troubling that we have had on the podcast so far. Please do take care when listening, and if you don't fancy hearing about murder, cannibalism, and some very disturbing things, then maybe give this episode a skip. But if you do love listening to that glorious gore like me, then strap in, because things are about to get meaty. Yuck. (laughs) The story I'm about to tell is not only Galloway's most gruesome, but perhaps the most gruesome in all of Scottish history. For this is the story of Alexander Sonny Bean. The events of this man's life happened hundreds of years ago, and they were poorly documented at the time. But while sceptics believe it is more fiction than fact, I am no sceptic. Whereas I most certainly am. Oh, let me have my fun, Annie. (laughs) I'm just going to highlight that this story is prominent folklore and not a history lesson today. Ah, well, Annie, I have archive evidence, so maybe the history lesson will be for you. I highly doubt it. (laughs) That's fair, actually, it's quite fair. (laughs) (laughs) The first written evidence we have of this tale comes from the Newgate Calendar. It was published sometime in the late 1700s, over a hundred years after the alleged events took place. Nevertheless... The piece tells a terrifying tale packed with dastardly details. The story takes place in the years between when James VI was King of Scotland, but before he became James VI and first at the Union of the Crowns in 1603. So let's take an educated guess and say it starts right about the time James VI was crowned the King of Scotland, at the ripe old age of 13 months in 1567. This is a turbulent time. James's mother, Mary Queen of Scots, had been forced to abdicate the Scottish crown, and so the political world was in turmoil. Indeed it was. But for the folk who lived far from the great city of Edinburgh, and far from the world of money, power and influence... This was just a regular old time in the Scottish countryside. How far is far, Jenny? Um, like eight miles? (laughs) (laughs) For Alexander Bean was born in a small village in East Lothian, about eight miles east of Edinburgh. His father was a hedger and a ditcher, meaning that he made an honest living cutting hedges and digging ditches. And he raised his son to do the same. But... Alexander wasn't big on cutting hedges, digging ditches, or, for that matter, making an honest living. As soon as he was old enough, Alexander decided to hedge his bits and ditch his family. But his family weren't too upset, for he was an insolent and idle youth who had caused them nothing but trouble. You see, Alexander had fallen in love with a young woman just as uninspired as himself. And together, they left the East Coast and travelled to a deserted and desolate part of the country, Galloway. 
Jenny. Galloway wasn't deserted or desolate. We've talked loads about its rich cultural history and vibrant communities. Well, let's just say that Alexander and his wife weren't big on culture or communities. But they were big on caves. For when they crossed the country in search of the perfect spot to start their life together, they found their forever home along the rural and rugged Galloway coast. But why build a house when you can live in one of nature's houses? The couple settled in a cave system that stretched over a mile deep into the rock. It had tall roofs, good insulation, and even many side tunnels for when guests came to stay. Sounds dreamy. Oh, just wait, Annie, because this place soon becomes the stuff of nightmares. Because before long, the happy couple started filling their humble abode with hungry mouths. But when mouths need fed, money needs made, and Alexander needed a way to support his rapidly growing family. But Alexander hated working. And so instead, he devised a much darker money-making scheme. The cave lay hidden on the coast, but not too far from it ran a road. This road connected the distant coastal villages and was seldom used by anyone other than travelling merchants and tradesmen. It was the perfect place for Alexander to start making a living. And by making a living, I mean robbing. But Alexander was not a stupid man. He knew that if he were to rob folk and then simply let them go, then sooner or later a victim would return to the place with forces of justice and hunt them to their cave. And so, Alexander did not just rob the poor merchants who were travelling along this road. He murdered them too. He and his wife would then travel to different towns and villages to buy food with their stolen goods. But they hated these trips, for they were outsiders, and people always took special interest in outsiders. If only there was a way that they could survive without having to go into these towns to buy food for their ever-increasing brood of children. Because this is a few hundred years ago, it's before home delivery. They can't just order online. It was a different time, Annie. (laughs) (laughs) And even if the internet did exist, their peculiar palates would only be satisfied on the dark web. Because the murderous cave dwellers realised that there was a simple solution to their problem. What with Alexander robbing and killing so many travellers... There were a lot of bodies to dispose of. And so, to the family, it made perfect logical sense to start eating these bodies. Two birds, one body? The Newgate calendar describes their grisly process as such. As soon as they had robbed and murdered any man, woman or child, they used to carry off the carcass to the den, where... Cutting it into quarters, they would pickle the mangled limbs and afterwards eat it, this being their only sustenance. And victims were at last so numerous, they commonly had an excessive amount of their abominable food. So, 
when nighttime arrived, they frequently threw legs and arms of the unhappy wretches they had murdered into the sea, at a great distance from their bloody habitation. The limbs were often cast up by the tide in several parts of the country, to the astonishment and terror of all the beholders. This is horrible. Mm-hmm. This family were so successful at murdering that they had extra body parts that they didn't want to pickle for a later date. Yep, and this was aided in the fact that Alexander and his wife had 14 children and each of them was trained up in the family trade of robbing, murdering and cannibaling. But what's even worse than this is that these children, once grown, went on to have children between themselves until there were upwards of 48 people living in the cave and surviving on cannibalism alone. Cursed turnips. Cursed turnips indeed. The family was raised solely in the cave system and was completely hidden from the rest of the world. When the tide came in, the mouth of the cave was flooded and the few folk who walked down that way would never suspect that there may be an entire cannibalistic clan living in the depth of the seemingly deserted cliffs. Over the decades, the family perfected their terrible technique. The men would head out to the road, hide in the nearby forests, and await their next victims. They would attack groups of up to six men if they were travelling by foot, but only two if they were on horseback. More of the clan would lie in wait around the attack area in case any victim were to somehow escape the initial attack. They would then be ambushed a second time, and it was ensured that there was never any chance of a victim leaving alive. The clan lived like this for 25 years, and during this time it's estimated that they robbed, murdered and ate over 1,000 men, women and children. Naturally, the area became known for people disappearing into thin air. Local villages lost many folk to the coastal paths, and were left with the quiet sorrow of their unexplained loss. Not to mention, people began to notice as travellers and tradesfolk simply did not arrive at their next destination. But because communications across any distances were much harder in those days, there was always the uncertainty that a person may have altered their journey mid-route and the messages that they maybe had tried to send forward never made it. These people may just have altered their path. But being the last to see many of the disappeared, numerous local innkeepers were arrested, tried and sent to the gallows for the disappearances. But each time the locals thought they had finally caught the perpetrator, yet more people would go missing. So secretive and stealthy was the Bean clan that no one even suspected that the caves were being used as a home, and so not once did anyone think to search there. That is until one fateful evening, when the Bean clan was finally to crumble. There was a market fair on in a nearby town, and the clan lay in wait for their next victim to walk into their deadly trap. 
Lo, through the trees they spy a couple returning home from the village fair on horseback. Seizing their chance, countless men sprung from the forest and tore the women from the horse. The Newgate calendar describes what happens next in gory detail. Would you like to read this bit, Annie? No. <laughs> Alright then, I'm going in. The female cannibals cut her throat and fell to suckling her blood with as great a gusto as if it had been wine. This done, they ripped up her belly and pulled out all her entrails. Don't know why you wouldn't want to read that, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> this woman's husband was a fine swordsman and was able to cut down a few of the attacking men before they dragged him from the horse too. But luckily, just as the cannibals were rearing to slit his throat, a crowd of revellers from the fair came along the road. Outnumbered and caught in the act, the assailants darted back into the forest and ran to their cave for cover. The traumatised man showed the people his poor wife's remains and then told them what had happened. All were utterly stunned. And it was decided that if what this man was saying was true, then they must go at once to Glasgow and tell the provost of the city. When the provost heard of this bloodthirsty clan in Galloway, he went immediately to King James VI. Now a man of 27, James VI was horrified to hear what was happening in his kingdom. He gathered up a troop of 400 men, as well as many well-trained bloodhounds. And within four days of the brutal attack, they were in Galloway, searching all around the road and the forests where the incident had happened. Eventually, the bloodhounds took the king down to the shore and finally into the gaping mouth of the deep, dark cave. At first, the men ignored the dogs. There was simply no way that anyone could be inside the waterlogged cave. But the hounds were insistent. And so, lighting torches, the troops entered the cave. And what they found was truly horrifying. Now the whole body, or as many of them as could, went in and were all so shocked at what they beheld that they were almost ready to sink into the earth. Legs, arms, thighs, hands and feet of men, women and children were hung up in rows like dried beef. A great many limbs lay in pickle and a great mass of money, both gold and silver, with watches, rings, swords, pistols and a large quantity of clothes and an infinite number of other things which they had taken from those whom they had murdered were thrown together in heaps and hung against the sides of the den. It's the devil's delicatessen. It's a cave of nightmares, Annie. The king and his men were rightly outraged and immediately arrested Alexander Bean, his wife, their eight sons, six daughters, 18 grandsons and 14 granddaughters. The whole clan was taken to Edinburgh and brutally executed without any trial, for there was no denying their guilt. The final words of the Newgate calendar tell us, 
The men had their hands and legs severed from their bodies, by which amputations they bled to death in some hours. The wife, daughters and grandchildren, having been made spectators of this just punishment inflicted on the men, were afterwards burnt to death in three fires. They all in general died without the least sign of repentance, but continued cursing and venting the most dreadful imprecations to the very last gasp of life. And that, Annie, is the terrible tale of Alexander Sonny Bean and his cannibalistic clan. It is indeed a terrible tale. This is not only because of the horrendous crimes that are described, but also because so many people believe it to be real when it is simply folklore. Ah, uh, here comes a skeptic. <laughs> oh, Jenny, I'm here. I've got my receipts and a long list of issues. All right. Well, what is number one on your this story is completely made up list? Let's go. Let's do this. <laughs> okay, let's <laughs> kick off with the name of the main character. You called the cannibal man Alexander Bean the whole way through the story, but most people know it as the tale of Sonny Bean. Do you know where this Sonny comes from and what it means? Is it because he saw Madoff, his victim's limbs? (laughs) Oh, forsaken turnips, Jenny. No. At the time of this story's publication, the term Sonny was a derogatory term for a Scottish person used by some English people. It was derived from the common shortening of Alexander to Sandy, which was then turned into Sonny. The term was associated with a vulgar, backwards and dim caricature of the Scots. So the cannibal being called Sonny Bean tells us two things. Firstly, that the story was being told by an English person for an English audience, or for an audience that was prepared to see the Scots as being uncivilised. And secondly, that the writer of this folklore was heavily prejudiced against the Scottish people. Um, well, yes, the, so the Newgate Calendar is an English publication, so that might explain that a bit. Ah, yes, the Newgate Calendar. <laughs> this is next on my This Story is Completely Made Up list. <laughs> Rather than being the reputable publication that you have thus so far painted it as, Jenny, this was, in fact, ye olde gossip-filled rag. The Newgate Calendar printed highly sensationalised true crime mixed with some salacious stories and some downright fiction. They opted for maximum scandal and minimal fact-checking. I don't know, Annie, that sounds pretty reputable to me. (laughs) (laughs) Alas, it's anything but. For one thing, if we include the subtitle, it's called The Newgate Calendar, The Malefactor's Bloody Register. (laughs) It's quite a tagline, to be fair. (laughs) To be honest, it would probably be a popular podcast. It would. (laughs) This publication was reporting gruesome crimes and their perpetrators. 
It was originally a monthly bulletin of executions that were happening at Newgate Prison in London, but seeing potential in the interest in crime cases, other publishers took the information from Newgate and fleshed it out into fantastical biographies of criminals and their crimes. These publications were massively popular and were often found in people's homes alongside the Bible. They were the true crime podcast of the very late 1700s and the swinging 1800s. People have always loved true crime, Annie. I mean, podcasts are simply the newest medium of this, but go back far enough and you'll find records of true crime everywhere. So I hold issue with the word true in that because (laughs) this is more highly embellished crime or (laughs) fake crime. (laughs) These news rags were cheap to make, wildly sensational, and unfortunately, they were designed for entertainment. But because they were held to absolutely zero journalistic standards, the Newgate calendar and publications similar to it were often used to push the morals, social agenda and political propaganda of the people funding it. So it's really different to modern day news and media. (laughs) (laughs) I've listened to a fair few true crime podcasts that could honestly fit that description (laughs) as well. So it's still alive and swinging today. (laughs) Okay, I see what you're saying, but this story when it's published, is a retelling of the crimes of Sonny Bean through an English lens in a not-so-trustworthy news source. But why does this mean that it's not necessarily a true story? Surely they didn't just yank this out of nowhere. I don't want to purely blame English media for this because cannibal stories were massively popular across Europe and they come up in a lot of folklore. But in this particular case, we need to jump on the context pony and gallop into the socio-political climate. Giddy up, little context pony. Go! This was published after the Jacobite Rising of 1745 and their defeat at Culloden. Because of this, anti-Scottish sentiment was high in many parts of England. And so the media were keen to paint Scotland in as unflattering a light as possible. They're looking to make Scotland appear as a country that needs civilising from the relatively recent union with England. British identity is still early in its formation. Within this union, the Scottish Parliament had just been dissolved a hundred years earlier And so England is really establishing her presence as a dominant force for politics and decision making. And an easy way to establish your supremacy is to make the opponent seem like a savage. Some historians believe this folklore is rooted in a concerted effort to use popular media to stoke anti-Scottish sentiment within the general English population. However, I'm also going to push forward profit as a major consideration here. When a media outlet knows that there's a prejudice against a specific population, they can make money from selling stories about how those people are bad. It's a trick as old as time. 
villainize people who seem like outsiders to you and make a pretty penny from selling media that reinforces the public's dislike of another group of people. They painted Sonny Bean as this grim leader of a barbaric, cave-dwelling, incestuous, murdering, cannibalistic clan of horror. It is no mistake that this family is presented as a clan, because it's an attempt to say that the old Highland clan ways of life were for barbarians, people who were lawless, people who had no control over these very primal impulses, who had no morals. It's also using the story to say that the Galloway Scots were unable to capture a family of nearly 50 folk who lived in a cave and ate over a thousand people. So what they're implying there is that Scotland had a real problem dealing out justice and she was unable to protect her own people. Now, the Sawney Bean story is often set in different time periods. Usually it's one of the Jameses who is king at the time. But the version that you took is one of the more popular ones, which is saying this was just before Scotland had her union with England and she had no control over her people. There were cannibals living in caves, murdering hundreds of people. And this is presented alongside true crime to paint a picture of the general incompetence and stupidity within Scotland and to make Scotland's past seem like something she should be incredibly ashamed of. Even the way the clan is said to be executed is beyond brutal, weirdly medieval and cruel. Hmm. Okay, yes, I see what you mean, but surely this can't be completely made up. I feel like there must be some awful truth in there that the Newgate calendar has spun into this grand gory tale. Well, the tale is normally said to have taken place in about the late 16th century, yet it was completely undocumented until the late 18th century. So there's a lot of time there for the myth to materialise and take form. A good example of this is that the cave that the clan was said to have lived in was meant to be a mile deep with many side tunnels and surely if such a place existed then we would know where it is. Yeah, the cave believed to have been the home to the clan is called Benane Cave. And I'm sure this is a palace of a cave, Jenny, right? Is it a mile deep? Uh, no. It's like 600 feet, which is about a tenth of a mile. Okay, so we can already see here we've got some gross over-exaggeration from the Newgate calendar. Even if there was one lonely cannibal living here at one time, there's no way that there were 50 of them, and no way that they would remain undetected for so long. As well, people have always loved true crime. If there had been a cannibal in this cave, we'd have much older ballads of Sonny Bean. And not just this, Jenny, let's look at the practicalities. Cannibalism is a lot of work. Mm, Yes. So when you have fertile land like Galloway, I mean, it's much easier to steal a cow than to kidnap someone's granny as she goes for her annual trip to the Mayfair. Aw, granny. But nevertheless, 
This story was a success and it was picked up by other crime anthologies throughout the following decades. The myth of Sonny Bean has persisted to this day and it continues to snowball. For example, despite the Newgate calendar reporting the unbelievably high number of over a thousand victims, currently Wikipedia has their victim count at... 5,593. I mean, what's happening there? Are they still in the cave eating people? How is it going up? That's like all of Galloway at the time. No wonder it was so deserted and desolate. Galloway and its many, many people are beautiful, Jenny. But back to debunking the bean. (laughs) Is that what they're calling it nowadays? There's also no record of the King of Scotland hunting down a cannibalistic clan and ordering them to be executed without trial. This is something that would have definitely been written down had it, or anything even remotely close, actually ever happened. So, you see, the more threads we pull at the gory tale of Sonny Bean, the more it unravels, and we see it for the folklore that it is. I feel like you've taken a page from the Cannibal Clan's book and torn me and my story to shreds, Annie. (laughs) But I don't know, I feel like this story just didn't spring from nowhere. There must be kernels of truth at its core. Well, maybe not kernels of truth so much seeds of another bit of folklore. That of Christy Cleek. (gasps) Christy Cleek, yes. I know this tale too. Because this story was commonly known well before the horrors of the Sonny Bean clan became popularised. This is the tale of a man named Andrew Christie. Christie was born in Perth in the early 14th century and he was a butcher by trade. But when the famines of the 1340s happened, Christie, along with the vast majority of folk in Scotland, found himself in very hard times. People starved as their bones began to protrude and their bellies swelled with malnutrition. Desperation kicked in, and with this, morals loosened. So desperate for food was Christie that he joined a roving gang of scavengers who travelled through the Grampian Mountains and raided and stole food from every village they came across. But no matter how much they stole, it was never enough to satiate the men's grinding hunger. As the famine got worse, there was less to take. Even if you are prepared to commit crimes to get your food, you can't steal what isn't there to begin with. When one of the men in the gang succumbed to starvation, Christy came up with an evil plan. He put his butcher skills to work, carved up the man's body, and served it to the rest of the famished gang members. But instead of being horrified at Christie's actions, the men found that they quite liked the taste of human flesh. They quickly pivoted their target from empty pantries in wee cottages to riders passing through the mountains. The gang, now led by Christie, would hide by roads and ambush riders, they then kill them and eat them along with their horses. It's said that Christie developed a brutal technique for pulling the riders from their horses with ease. 
As the unassuming raider was passing by, Christy would lunge out from his hiding spot, brandishing a rod with a large iron hook on the end. He'd then use this implement to hook the raider in the mouth and drag him from his horse. This implement was called a cleek, and so Christy Cleek got his gory name. Christy Cleek and his gang of cannibals were believed to have killed about 30 raiders in this way, but soon word of their dastardly deeds reached Perth and an armed force was sent to hunt them down. When they found the gang, they swiftly killed them all but one. For Christy Cleek escaped the attack and slipped back into society under an alias, perhaps as a butcher, perhaps still a cannibal, but definitely still out there awaiting his next victim. <laughs> I mean, he's not a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> as close as you're going to get in the real world. <laughs> He's not living forever, Jenny. <laughs> okay, well, I'm getting into the stories, all right? I was telling that as if I was mid-famine in the 1340s, Annie, all right? <laughs> I am in it. <laughs> oh, Jenny, you're bringing all the cannibals out today. <laughs> I am. But we can definitely see the similarities between Christy Cleek and Sonny Bean. And actually, I find Christy Cleek slightly more believable and thus more scary because it is significantly less exaggerated than Sonny Bean. Yeah, I think this story gives them a motive. It puts them in a time where people were desperate. They would do things that were against regular everyday moralistic codes. And, you know, I could see if we fell into some sort of apocalypse tomorrow, we'd have cannibalistic clans in the Grampians in no time. I mean, maybe you, Jenny. I'm growing raspberries in my garden. Hey, I said that there would be some, not that I would be in one. <laughs> we both know that I wouldn't last two days in the apocalypse. Because <laughs> this tale is so terrifying, in the following generations to come, Christy Cleek turned into a Scottish bogeyman. His name was used to scare children into behaving, because perhaps... Christy Cleek would come and get you with his big iron hook if you didn't do as your mother said. Which, I mean, <laughs> I know parenting standards have changed, <laughs> but it seems like a very different threat to be like, oh, I'll tell Santa you've been naughty too. Oh, I'll feed you to the cannibal. <laughs> that's, that's awful. <laughs> I mean, it's terrifying to me, let alone to we children. My gosh. I think it's very easy to see how that story was able to spread fear through generations of Scots. Which I guess makes sense because by the time the story of Sonny Bean became well known in the 18th century, the story of Christy Cleek was already deeply embedded in the Scottish imagination. And I suppose it is quite easy to see how one could evolve into the other. Or perhaps they have the same origin in history. Maybe there was, once upon a time, a real cannibal whose deeds were so disgusting that his name was never spoken, but was replaced with the myths of Cleek and Bean. But I do think it's interesting that when we look at all the extra bells and whistles added onto the Sonny Bean story, we can see that Christy Cleek was transformed from a bogeyman for children into Sonny Bean, the bogeyman of an entire nation. 
So, are you agreeing with me that this is folklore, these people aren't real? Uh, I, okay, yes, I am now a skeptic of Sonny Bean, I'll give you that, but I am a straight-up believer in Christy Cleek, which somehow feels much, much worse. (laughs) (laughs) I don't feel very lovely after these stories. I feel like I need a palate cleanser after all of the meaty horror. (laughs) Um... Oh, I do. I actually have a fun side tangent for you that I promise doesn't involve any murder, not even one. Because a man did actually live in Sonny Bean's cave for over 30 years between 1950 and 1980. So quite recently, he built a wall over the mouth of the cave and it has like a door in it and a little fireplace and a window. And if you visit the cave today, you can actually still see the wall over the mouth of the cave. The man's name was Henry Ewart Talbot, but he was known locally as Snib, and he was originally from Dundee and had worked in a bank before packing it all in and going full cave life. There's even a cairn commemorating him near the cave entrance, and many locals still know it as Snib's Cave for this reason. So that's a fun little palate cleanser for you. <laughs> Thanks, Jenny. That really got the cannibals out my head. <laughs> Just in time to tell you my fun fact that Sonny Bean inspired the 1970s horror film The Hills Have Eyes. Ah. But I've never watched this film because I'm too scared. Although it's quite a good film, but I think you'd hate it. Yeah. (laughs) My final hot take on the story of Sonny Bean is the disservice it does to his wife, who in a lot of the stories is named as Black Agnes Douglas. It really displeases me because the name sounds so similar to Black Agnes, Countess of Dunbar, who was an exceptional leader during the Second Scottish War of Independence. So I suspect that this folklore is trying to soil the name of an astonishingly brilliant war tactician. Well, I hate to tell you, but that's the price of fame, Annie. The centuries blend together, and before you know it, your name gets stolen for a cannibal's wife. What are you going to do? And on that note, Jenny, on to more terrifying tales from Galloway. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Well, Jenny, you've presented your Cannibal Clan cave 
So let me raise you with my monstrous murder hole. You know, Annie, I would never have guessed that Galloway was going to give us so many great, ghastly, gruesome, grotesque, grim goosebumps. It's wild. I can't wait to meander into your mysterious, malevolent, macabre murder map. This story begins without any alliteration. (laughs) One stormy November evening, about 500 years ago. Now, Jenny, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a young peddler boy, Peter. Yep, done. In them. Tied the laces. I'm in. He's travelling, and as the sun sets and darkness consumes the bleak moorland path ahead of him, a low panic begins to set in. These glens are known to be exceptionally dangerous at night time. As Peter walks through the gloomy mist... He whispers old prayers to himself, these prayers he remembers from days long past that he learnt from his grandmother. Then, in the distance ahead, he notices a faint glimmering light and it lifts his heart. He approaches the light slowly because he knows that not all is what it seems at this time of year and at that time of night, when the veils between worlds become very thin indeed. But luckily for Peter, the light turns out to be that of a fireplace glinting through the small windows of a lonely old cottage. To his great relief, Peter immediately recognises this place. He had visited it a year earlier when he was amongst a large company of travellers, and they had been warmly welcomed by a woman and her two friendly sons. They had paid for their bed and board, and had gone on their way happily. Delighted by this wave of good luck, and set free from the fear of every shadow or every unusual noise on the moor, Peter runs up to the cottage door. His quiet prayers and this firelight had guided Peter to safety, beckoning him in to rest for the night. Eagerly, he knocked at the door, but received no answer. Peter peered through the window to see what could cause the delay, and that's when he saw the occupants within. They were all at their regular jobs, doing what you would expect people in an inn to be doing. But there was an air of urgency around them, as though something was out of order and they must set it right. The old woman was scrubbing the floor and strewing it with sand. Now, that might sound a little bit strange, but sand was quite commonly used to clean floors back then. And that is definitely the most upsetting thing we will be hearing in this episode. (laughs) Meanwhile, as this old woman was scrubbing her floor with sand, her two sons, one with a big ginger beard and one with a big black beard, were thrusting something that looked very heavy into a great chest. They struggled with it awkwardly, but eventually, after a great deal of heaving and hauling and shoving, the bulky object finally folded up into the chest. Then they hastily locked the chest and smiled at one another, a job well done. Seeing that they were now not so preoccupied, Peter lightly tapped the window, thinking that this hard-working family within must not have heard him at the door. They all stopped and stared up at him in dismay. 
That's when Peter's eyes twitched to the kitchen table, where a butcher's knife glistened with blood. He set that thought aside, thinking they must have had meat for their dinner, perhaps they'd been poaching, and this is why they're nervous. But then, with a sudden jolt, the larger of the two sons, the one with the big ginger beard, rushed out to Peter and grabbed him roughly by his shoulder, dragging him inside the cottage. Peter thought there must be a major misunderstanding here, and so tried to laugh off this uneasy and almost rude greeting by welcoming the family to join him on a wee ride on the context pony. He said to them, Please don't worry, I am but a poor peddler boy. In fact, I visited here last year. The old woman scowled and asked in an impatient, harsh voice, Are you alone? I I am alone here, yes, and, well, don't get too deep into it, but I am alone in the whole world. There's, I've got nobody. Very alone. Peter had a sad wee face. <laughs> However, the ginger-bearded son sneered and retorted at him. Huh. Then you are welcome here. Now, this was not the pleasant welcome Peter had expected, and he began to feel slightly nervous. Yet, the night was dark and there was danger outside, so reluctantly he decided to remain. He didn't feel like he had much choice. Now the old woman with the grey hair suddenly smiled warmly at him, showing him all of her little crooked teeth. She patted his shoulder and said, You'll be hungry then, lad. And she sat him down with a small bowl of very tasty soup. However, as Peter ate, he looked around some more. The cottage had been previously neat and orderly, but now it felt desolate. A strange shadow of violence lingered in the room. It was as though there was a dreadful, unspoken secret lurking within. The black-bearded son showed Peter to his bedroom, which did not do much to ease the sense that something wasn't quite right. The curtains had been torn off the bed, and there was a chair lying upside down in the middle of the floor. What could have happened in this room to dishevel it so much? Peter turned to the black-bearded man with pleading eyes, and he asked, Would you be so kind as to give me a candle to burn? It's just, um, I'm awful afraid of the dark, if I'm being honest. But the black-bearded man had no mercy. We don't have the candles to spare for scared little boys. Now the instant the black-bearded man left the room, Peter grabbed the chair from the floor and wedged it under the door. He did not feel safe. Yet he got into bed and lay there, his guts churning with anxiety, certain that he was so scared that he would never fall asleep, not that night. However, his eyelids were heavy after a long day of travelling, and his body was tired, and his brain began flickering in and out of consciousness. Slowly, sleep crept up on Peter and wrapped him in her snoozy embrace. (coughs) Peter woke at the sound of a single distressed cry. It was the wee hours of the morning, so he quickly decided it was none of his business and he vowed to go back to sleep. But then the clouds moved and illuminated something at the bottom of his door. 
It glinted as though it was shiny or wet. Peter took a deep breath and crept out of his bed to investigate. But as he slowly approached, the clouds kept moving, so he couldn't quite make out what this thing was. He got down on his hands and knees to get a closer look and then carefully reached out his finger and touched it. It was an oozing fluid that was coming from beneath the door. It shocked him like a bolt of lightning when he looked down at his hand and saw how much this wet thing contrasted with his pale skin. It was blood. (laughs) Swallowing his fear, he pressed his eye to the keyhole of the door. What he saw silently flushed him with reassurance because the blood was coming from a freshly slaughtered goat. His imagination must have been playing games with him to have thought such sinister things when he saw this stream of blood. However, he remained at the keyhole transfixed and began listening to the conversation between the two brothers on the other side of the door. The horror that he felt at their words froze him in an iron grasp. I wish all throats we cut were as easy as this goat. Did you ever hear such a death noise as the old gentleman made last night? Why, it's far easier to murder and rob than run a lousy inn. Now, we shall go to the murder hole. Ah, the murder hole is my favourite thing in the world, brother. One plunge, and a fellow is dead and buried in a moment. Just then, the old woman entered the scene and added, What have I told you boys about killing goats in the hallway in the middle of the night? Jeez, so! And it's all fine and well with that fellow from last night. But how are we going to dispatch of the young lad in there? Peter could see just enough through the keyhole to watch the ginger-bearded man make an exceptionally sinister gesture. He raised his bloody knife and mimicked it crossing his own throat. Shaking, Peter's inner voice screamed at him to get out as quickly and as quietly as he could. And so, finally listening to his guts, he crept across the room to the window and gently opened it as to not make a noise. He lifted one leg out the window and then the other. He was almost out of this cursed cottage, but just as he was slipping outside, a deep voice bellowed from behind him. The boy has escaped. Let loose the bloodhound. With the ravenous bark of a bloodhound behind him, Peter sprinted as fast as he could. The sun was rising just enough for him to spot a nearby path, and he darted to it as fast as his legs would carry him as though his life depended on it because it did. With the baying of the hound at his feet and the shouting of the bearded brothers in fast pursuit, Peter ran with all his energy. However, he had left so quickly after waking in the middle of the night that he had not put on his boots, and so his feet quickly felt like they were on fire. In his rush, he stumbled and fell on the rocky path. He was badly cut by sharp rocks and began bleeding dreadfully. 
the bloodhound was so close to Peter that he could almost smell its breath. But his adrenaline was rushing, and he staggered up and continued his escape. However, the dog smelt all the fresh blood on the stones from where Peter had fallen, and it stopped right there, believing its chase had come to an end. The bloodhound lay proudly by the blood, showing its master the damage done to the boy. But when the bearded brothers caught up to their hound, they were furious, because Peter had evaded them. He did not stop running until he reached a wee village, and he was in a very pitiful state by the time he got there. He did not hesitate to tell all the villagers about his experience at the wee cottage in the moor, and the threat of the murder hall. The locals were terrified and outraged by his story, so they immediately erected three gallows in the glen. Before the sun set that night, the two bearded brothers and their mother were captured. They could not deny their guilt at all, because in the old chest in the wee cottage, the villagers found the dead body of an old man. It must have been their final victim from the night before. And when they were pressed, they revealed the location of the dreaded murder hole. The villagers went out and found this place to be a deep pool of water, a seemingly bottomless loch, not far from the cottage. And when these waters were searched, it was discovered that the murderous family had sunken over 50 bodies in its murky depths. By sunset, the villagers had put an end to the murders on the moor. The final deaths in this sad tale were the three murderers who were hanging on the gallows. Wow, what a wild ride, Annie. And again, I feel like we can see some similarities with Sonny Bean here. We have people murdering for money and gold, but also in this case, it seems for just sheer delight. I feel like this family enjoyed what they were doing. The murder hole story is a well-known folktale of Galloway. And there are a few locations locals say is the spot of the real-life murder hole. An inlet of Loch Neldricken is the main location, where legend has it that the waters never freeze over, as the bodies in the depth of the pool keep the water too warm, and even in the coldest of winters, the murder hole remains unfrozen. But actually, this location is thought to be known as the murder hole because S.R. Crockett took the well-known story for his book, The Raiders, but he moved the original location to this spot so as to better serve his plot. It turns out that the murder hole is actually a well in Glen Trool, where it's believed that bandits would rob travellers and throw their bodies down to the depths of the well in order to destroy the evidence of their crimes. Either way, it means that both of the grisly stories that we've told today occur in rural parts of Galloway. And it's interesting because there's often a wariness in rural land in horror folklore. There's this universal fear of there being no one around to hear you scream. We get a lot of similar stories to this about the Highlands, don't we? Yeah, isn't there uh, the most recent Black Mirror season has one sort of set in a desolate Highland landscape? 
Yes! <laughs> Somehow beautiful landscapes with interesting geologic features make people dream up cannibal caves and murder holes. <laughs> I think these stories become so well known and so beloved in the cultural imagination because people want to explore very dark impulses but they want to put them in places that they feel are very far away from themselves, remote and obscure. And obviously these places aren't remote and obscure for the people who live in them, but for the majority of people who are consuming these kinds of stories, they are. This kind of horror folklore is a way of examining the most evil parts of humanity, yet keeping it at a safe distance. Because everyone wants to imagine that those folk who succumb to the most forbidden and evil acts are not their neighbours. And so that space allows these tales to become a fun fireside favourite that you don't need to think too much about. I think about them a lot. (laughs) (laughs) My take-home message from these stories is that murderous families tend to meet their maker. It's interesting that in both these dark pieces of Scottish folklore, we see the ultimate breakdown of morality, and yet we also see brutal judgment being served. And with that, dear listeners, (laughs) we come to an end of one of the scariest episodes of Stories of Scotland ever. (laughs) And not a single ghost in it, who'd have guessed? (laughs) (laughs) We hope you've enjoyed this adventure as much as we have, which is limited. (laughs) But before we bid you farewell, we do have an important announcement to make. Starting soon, we'll be moving our podcast to a platform that will insert automated adverts for us. But don't worry, you'll still be able to find us wherever you're listening now. It's not going to change any of that. However, it does mean that ads are going to be automatically put into our show... We know it's not ideal, but essentially we need to be able to make some money from the podcast to be able to keep it going. And so it feels like an essential step if we're to keep momentum going forward. But here's where you can really help us. We'd absolutely love to have independent Scottish businesses or Scottish connected business advertising with us instead of doing these automated adverts with companies we know nothing about. If you or anyone you know would like to partner with Stories of Scotland, that would be fantastic. However, for the time being, you'll have to bear with us for whatever our new platform puts in. Expect to get some interesting adverts for mattresses and online therapy. (laughs) This hasn't been a decision that we've made lightly. But we really do appreciate your support and we'll always do everything we can to make this show free to listen to. Creating this podcast is our passion and we want to continue sharing Scotland's incredible stories with you. If you would like ad-free content, then we will be putting it up on our Patreon page. Your contributions there make a huge difference and they too help us keep this show alive. You also get lots of extra Scottish content, stories and tidbits up there too. The supporters on Patreon are completely the lifeblood of this podcast and it's thanks to them that we've been able to bring it to where it is today 
We also have a big deadline coming up for our super exciting book project. Now, we are working tirelessly to make this book a reality while still bringing you episodes as regularly as we can. It's a juggling act, but we're doing both the podcast and the book for our sheer love of storytelling. So we're trying to be as consistent as we can, but we will be announcing a very exciting project very soon. Whether you choose to support us on Patreon or connect us with some Scottish businesses or simply share our podcast with your friends and family, your support genuinely means the world to us. And no matter what, we're going to ensure that Stories of Scotland continues to thrive. A massive heartfelt thank you for you, just for listening, for being part of our journey so far. And we can't wait to continue sharing incredible tales of Scotland with you. And let's end with a giant thanks to our newest patrons, who are... Isla, Robin, Douglas, Gillian, and Kadea. Thank you all so much for supporting our show. Until next time, Slanjava. Slanjava. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.